evolution advocacy groups in the US devoted to promoting the teaching of evolution in a science classroom have long pointed out the association between racism and anti-evolution campaigns headed up by creationists. Before the Civil War in the US, apologists for slavery claimed that this institution was sanctified by the Bible. These theological claims persisted well after the emancipation of African Americans in the South, persisting well into the 20th century. The Southern Baptist denomination, founded in 1845 as a haven for pro-slavery Baptists, opposed integration and adopted other platforms that have been considered by many to have racist overtones. The SBC also has a history of opposing the teaching of evolution in the classroom. The Ku Klux Klan opposed evolution and in 1925 became the first organization to demand equal time for creationism and evolution in the science classroom. Bob Jones University, founded in 1927, prohibited interracial dating for much of its history. Its leaders argued that this practice defied God and ignored the created differences among the races. Recently, Alison Hooper wrote an op-ed piece for Scientific American, published July 5, 2021, entitled Denial of Evolution is a Form of White Supremacy. In this piece, she moves beyond the tragic association between racism and opposition to teaching evolution and instead claims that there is a direct relationship. According to Hooper, creationists' underlying motive is not religious, but instead reflects an attitude of white supremacy. What is the relationship between creationism and racism? Is Alison Hooper's strong claim justified? Or is there more to the relationship between evolution, creation and racism than we are led to believe based on Hooper's recent article? I am joined today by biochemist and Christian apologist Dr. Fuzz Rana, the author of Who Was Adam? to take on these questions and more. Welcome back to the show, Fuzz. How are you doing? Nikos, thanks for having me. It's a great background you got there. I guess it's not a virtual one. No, this is actually uh, kind of the my office and the living room. We have like an open floor concept in our house. So, and all the the decor that you see is uh, my wife's handiwork, not mine, of course. Great, and you've also been busy writing. I see you've um, you've got the sequel to Humans Two Point coming out soon. Yeah, well, I'm in the process of drafting that manuscript, but in October, I have a, a book coming out called Fit for a Purpose. So that that will be on the shelves, hopefully in early October. And it's essentially looking at uh, biochemical design, uh, making a case that the anthropic principle that we see in cosmology actually extends to biochemistry. And we see a type of biochemical fine tuning that uh, augments, I think, the already uh, strong case that that I and others have made for a creator's role in the origin and the design of life. Do you think that humans are able to make their own successful biology through the labs? Uh, I think that eventually we will make um, entities that will assume many of the properties of living systems. Uh, I don't think we'll ever be able to, at least in the foreseeable future, to generate a cell that's as complex as even a minimal cell. But already, you know, uh, scientists are doing some interesting things in terms of making these chemical super systems that uh, can replicate, that can uh, actually 
harbor genetic material that can also replicate in its in the interior space of these protocellular entities. So there's some interesting work that's being done, uh, but in my mind, that work, you know, really demonstrates empirically that intelligent agency is ultimately needed to organize molecules into into systems that again would have the, the the complex set of properties that define a living system. You think humans could take something like a dog and give it genes for like wings and like teach it to fly? <laughs> well, probably not that extreme. But for example, there are some uh, molecular biologists and developmental biologists that are working on trying to resurrect dinosaurs from extinction. That would be and, cool. I, I, I just one of my favorite movies, Jurassic Park. Yeah. Well, but instead of doing like a cloning of ancient DNA, what they're doing is they're trying to convert birds into more of a, what they would argue is an ancestral state, trying to revert birds to more dinosaur type of creatures and have already made some very interesting progress towards that end. And, and so this is uh, dubbed reverse evolution uh, by biologists and, um, uh, you know, is the type of uh, approach that most likely we'll see, you know, for, you know, doing things like, again, converting, you know, birds into dinosaur type of creatures. But it's kind of along the lines of what you're suggesting, you know, giving dogs wings and that type of thing. I don't think we'll ever do anything quite that extreme, but uh, there's going to be quite a bit of work along those lines of really creating artificial types of animals, you know, that could serve biotechnology purposes. Um, I'm a software developer. So as you go from program to program, you're losing information that's not recoverable unless you're like commenting out the code. So if we evolved from dinosaurs and if they want to go back in time, they're not going to have the original genes there, but unless there was like comments in the code of the genome where you could sort of comment out. So in a sense, you're, you're unless you can fix the broken ancient DNA, if they want to get back to dinosaurs, they're going to have some kind of their own imagination in a sense. Yeah, well, I mean, that's an interesting point because, you know, there is the, the thought that, you know, uh, during the evolutionary process, you would essentially lose genes that would essentially become disabled uh, and that to revert back to an ancestral state, you'd have to somehow recover those damaged or lost genes. And, and that, as you're pointing out, poses a real problem. But to me, the way I, I view this is really from a a design or a slash a creation perspective where I see shared biological features in organisms, whether at the anatomical level or at the genetic level, as reflecting shared design, that, that there's a designer that employs common archetypes uh, when he you know, creates different life forms. And, and so what I think really people are taking advantage of is that archetypical design and, and of course, that, that archetype would be modified in various ways to produce a wide range of functional organisms, uh, both genetically and anatomically speaking. And I think that's what scientists are tapping into. And that's, in other words, you could understand that project from a creation or a design perspective, uh, you know, and it, and it makes perfect sense. Yeah, I, I just hope they managed to get original, not some kind of weird hybrid. Let's go on to the, the main topic of tonight, one that we're both really interested in. Um, and uh, it's based on an article by uh, 
Scientific American, and I don't know, don't know how long we'll keep it up there because uh, I can imagine it's going to bring them some flack. And they wrote this article called "Denial of Evolution is a Form of White Supremacy," and uh, subtitled "As Museums Reopen, Let's Introduce Ourselves and Our Children to the Original Black Ancestors of All Human Beings." And it's just a, a, a quite amazing article, really, as you read some of the um, the insights into the Bible that are basically. Uh, turned around and used for this pro-evolutionist child teacher opinion. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a remarkable article that in, in, in many respects I think is uncharitable to say the least, but is also, I, I think, frankly, poorly researched and uh, uh, lacks sophistication. Uh, a lot to actually agree with, that, believe it or not, the, the author's uh, viewpoint there. This is an op-ed piece, by the way, and I think it's Allison Hooper is the, the, the author of the piece. And, uh, you know, she begins by, by pointing out that here in the United States, there is a holiday called Juneteenth, which was really, sadly to me, un, unbeknownst to me, but it's the, the day that African-American people celebrate the emancipation patient proclamation, uh, which is a, a, an incredibly important milestone in, in our American history. And it, it's worth celebrating. It's worth making this a, a national holiday. Uh, and, and so, you know, uh, she begins by pointing out that that this is important to celebrate, that, that we want to, uh, you know, move beyond our tragic and, and you know, racially divided history in America. So I'm all, I'm all for that. And that she even points out, interestingly enough, that what anthropology has uncovered is that uh, human beings have originated from what it would, by all intents and purposes, appear to be uh, a black population from an African, from African American, sorry, check that, from African people groups and this includes not only our genetics, but our, the, the sophisticated culture that is displayed by humans. And in fact, this is something that, you know, is, is established scientifically. It's not a widely recognized fact. It's not evident in most museum displays on human origins. It's typically not found in popular science treatments. And so, you know, I, I, I found that point really important and refreshing. And in fact, it's a point that we have made in the updated edition to Who Was Adam. It's a point we've made in, in, in other blog articles and in video resources that we produced from reasons to believe that the very first people group are people groups or African people groups. And her point is that this should give us some pause for thought when we start thinking about racial discrimination and the racial divide among us is that we all share an ancestry and we all are African underneath our skin. So this is a these are this is a very important point that she's making that I that I firmly agree with. And even the concern she raises about why isn't this fact more broadly, you know, acknowledged, of course, is again a, an important question to ask. And and yet she segues from that point to suddenly laying all the blame at the feet of people that are anti-evolutionist or at least that are pro-creationists, so claiming that, right? yeah, that, that creationism isn't really religiously motivated. It's actually uh, motivated by an air of white supremacy. And so, you know, the, the irony of 
uh, this is that uh, on Saturday night, I did a, a podcast with my good friends, Krista Bontrager and Monique Dusen. And, and, and Monique is African-American. And I come from a, 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 a heritage where my father was from India. And so there were two of the three of us that held to creation perspectives that express some form of anti-evolution that weren't, <laughs> you know, what you would consider to be white, that, that, that uncle Tom's then, right? <laughs> yeah. Or something. Right. So, so, I mean, it's, it, that was kind of the irony, but you know, to me, it's remarkable that she would lay the blame at the, the feet of creationists. And this is where the article I think becomes really uh, unsophisticated and really poorly, poorly researched. Yeah, even even from a non-scholar, when I was reading there, basically she was talking about um, Cain and Abel, and how like because Cain murdered Abel, he was given this mark, and she said this mark was blackness, and then so that's how all these right-wing Christian evangelicals see blacks is like the the sort of curse of Cain, but in the Hebrew, I think that's off or something like that, which means. Mark, which is the the word Bible use marked in it, and it means basically Mark doesn't mean like black or anything like that. So, complete like ridiculous argument. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, to to give Allison Hooper some uh, the benefit of the doubt, you know, sadly in the United States, as part of the apologetics that was developed by some Christians in support of the institution of slavery, was this type of an interpretation where. They claim that the, the mark of, of Cain was actually black skin uh, or that, that, that the curse of Ham was black skin. And of course, this is an unsubstantiated interpretation of scripture. And in fact, I've got a, a book uh, here. It's called Is Slavery Sanctioned by the Bible? It's written by Isaac Allen. And this book was really more of a, a booklet, uh, was put together uh, at the time of the Civil War in the United States, where uh, Isaac Allen is a Christian, but he was an abolitionist. Yeah, the, Isaac Allen makes the case that uh, there that in no way, shape, or form does the Bible teach uh, any type of uh, form of slavery that could be used to justify or sanction the institution of slavery, and that he points out that this is a, this idea that that Ham's curse or Cain's curse as dark skin is simply unsubstantiated, biblically speaking. So at the very time that people were advancing this interpretation in support of the institution of slavery, there were other scholars who were challenging it uh, as, as well. I mean, and so, you know, this is where I think she does a very poor job of researching the article is pointing out that, yes, indeed, this is a, uh, was a, a misuse of scripture to advance uh, you know, a program in which people wanted to justify slavery, but that there were other people who would have held to creationist views, who would be Christians, who would oppose these ideas, again, from a biblical standpoint. Or, you know, she neglects to point out that today, creation or creationist organizations, Reasons to Believe, which is an old earth organization, or the ICR, or Answers in Genesis, or Creation Ministries International, these last three are young earth organizations, all essentially adopt an interpretation that views Adam and Eve as having, as not being white-skinned, but actually being, you know, on our perspective, again, dark-skinned, similar to African people groups. 
I think AIG and ICR and in 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 CMI uh, take the view that that Adam and Eve were kind of a middle brown color to use uh, a answers in Genesis language, uh, but nevertheless, uh, all four organizations strongly uh, are opposed to racism, are strongly and strongly see the opposition to racism as flowing out of this perspective that all human beings are in Adam genetically and and culturally, but also are in Adam as being you know Adam and Eve's descendants and being spiritually, you know, in Adam as well. So it's really poorly researched where she cites these handful of examples that creationism is white supremacy, but the fact of the matter is she she really, um, I, I think, uh, has not done a good job of, of doing her appropriate homework. I think Scientific American have done a really cool job of allowing us past their filters because they've got somebody with a conflict of interest. I mean, she's on like YouTube's, for videos for advertising basically evolution to you know young young teenagers and then so the obviously the bible con- contradicts what she's saying so like how can she take a objective stance towards it you know and, and it's just shows you what, what um scientific american are, are, are painting themselves as i know it has a disclaimer at the bottom uh, these uh, opinions don't necessarily re- reflect um, scientific american well of course they are if you're letting that stuff be published on your site i mean there's no way that is if what she wrote went against Scientific American's agenda, and I'll call it agenda now based on this article, there's no way it would get through it without their oversight and approval. So, well, you know, what, what's you know interesting to me is one of the articles that she links to in defense of her claim that, that uh, again, creationism is a form of white supremacy is an article published, I think, in, in June of... May, June of 2002, 2003, by the National Center of Science Education. And it's an article entitled Racism in the Public's Perception of Evolution. And in the article, they, they I think, make a, a subtle and in, in, in a fair case that there is an association historically between uh, Christian fundamentalism in the United States and white supremacy. So, for example, the Ku Klux Klan in 1925 was the very first organization to officially condemn the teaching of evolution in the science classroom and, in fact, demanded that both creation and evolution be given equal time. You know, And there were many members of the Ku Klux Klan that were Christian fundamentalists and many uh, Christian fundamentalists that were members of the Ku Klux Klan. But as they point out in the article, that this doesn't necessarily reflect the views of everybody who was a creationist. This was just simply an association that that clearly, you know, is is evident. Uh, and you know, uh, you know, they also point out in the article that there were people that were uh, that were advocating for teaching of evolution in the science classroom who also were white supremacists and, and were actually employing Darwin's theory of, of, of evolution as applied to humans as the basis for that that their justification of white supremacy. So to me, the issue really is there were white supremacists <laughs> that were living in the United States uh, uh, prior to, during the Civil War, and even after the Civil War into the 20th century that were using what they consider to be their basis of authority to justify their white supremacist views, whether it was twisting scripture or, you know, 
uh, perhaps you could argue, twisting the evolutionary paradigm in favor of their perspectives. And so this article that Alison Hooper cites does a wonderful job of explaining the subtleties and the nuances uh, you know, uh, of, of the issue. And in fact, even pointed out that the, that the, um, the, uh, the trial in Arkansas in the 1970s, uh, Epperson versus the Board of Education, uh, was a, essentially a trial that w- involved racist perspectives where people saw, again, uh, a connection between racism and teaching of evolution, both pro and, and, and in opposition to, again, teaching evolution in the science classroom. So in other words, yeah, there is this connection between you know, racism and creationism, but there's also a connection between racism and the evolutionary paradigm. And, you know, again, the issue is white supremacy. The issue isn't really, uh, you know, you know, what scripture teaches. And this is really where I think Alison Cooper blew it because she cites an article that actually uh, argues against the very point that she's trying to make. I mean, if, if you're seeing both sides are, are can be represented by white supremacists. And and if you just completely whitewash one aspect of it, and of course you might say it's causal that racism could come from, from the Bible. And also what I'm, I'm starting to see now is basically is that there's this, there's this sort of upping the ante with sort of vinyl, vin, um, villainizing um, basically Christian Christian beliefs, which is not something that we we are surprised by because the Bible talks about, you know, in the, in the end times, um, you will be hated by basically everybody, but that doesn't mean that we just sit around and take it on the chin, you know, so. Well, you know, you know, to me, uh, I think part of the motivation here, of course, it's one thing to, to, to advocate for teaching of, of evolution, right. Uh, to be an evolution, you know, advocate. Uh, I have no issue with that or to challenge creationism. I have no issue with that. And even to ask the deeper questions, what's motivating a, a creationist belief, right. As part of this, this dialogue, this debate, this conversation. But what Alison Hooper is doing, I think, is a harbinger of what's to come in, 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 as we interact with our culture. And because we live in a world where there's a cancel culture, right? You know, where the, the, the one thing that will get you silenced quicker than anything is to espouse any kind of racist perspective. Uh, and, and I see what Alison Hooper is doing here is, in effect, uh, playing that particular card, you know, trying to cancel creationism by claiming that creationism is racist. And, and so it's almost like a bullying tactic, really, um, more so than anything else that she's, that she's engaged in. And to me, the sad thing is that, that the, it's so uh, outlandish in terms of uh, this claim that, that, again, creationism is, equates to white supremacy. In fact, I would take the opposite position, I would take the view that really, if you understand the, the, the creationist perspective derived from a careful analysis of the biblical passages, the biblical text, you wind up in a position where there's no way, shape, or form you could tolerate racial injustice and racial discrimination of any form. You know, because scripture does teach us that all human beings are made in God's image, which means every human being has infinite worth and value. It teaches us that we all are in Adam, 
And because we're in Adam, we all share the same problem, namely an alienation from God. But it's also what scripture teaches us is that alienation is essentially uh, uh, is eliminated and we're reconciled to our creator uh, through the work of Christ on the cross. And as an outworking of Christ's work on the cross, that now means that all human beings are the same before God, uh, that we all have equal status, that there's no Jew or Greek, there's no free or slave. We all are one in Christ. And so this is what scripture teaches in, in a very in very broad terms. And this perspective, if anything, should uh, be a very powerful motivation, you know, for, uh, for rec- racial reconciliation and, and for pursuing racial justice. And, and so if you properly understand what scripture is teaching, and part of the reason why many people as creationists are concerned about evolution is because they see evolution as undermining the inherent worth and value of human beings. If you render human beings as nothing more than animals that are no special, no, that are no different than any other creature that are not special in any way, uh, that everything about us that we think makes us unique is the outworking of evolutionary processes, and that if human beings are just a happenstance outworking of evolution, uh, then there's no real ultimate meaning or purpose to human life. This, is, this, I, this implication of the evolutionary paradigm deeply concerns creationists and is part of the motivation why creationists stand in opposition to evolution. And so the, the motivation for the opposition uh, is, uh, in a sense, one that would be uh, anything but racist or advocating white supremacy. It would be one of that's promoting human unity, human dignity, and, and promoting you know, uh, a, a genuine type of justice in the world. So again, this is why I just think this article is just so poorly researched and is, is really so unfair. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned like, based on some, your research that Adam was not white, he was sort of tanned colors, is that what you're saying? Yes. I mean, if you look at the data from molecular anthropology, you know, it's very clear that the oldest people groups uh, on on the planet are African people groups. And that when you look at the genetic variability you see within African people groups, that variability subsumes the variability that you see for people, groups outside of Africa, for people in Europe and Asia and in the Americas. And in the way you would explain that, it would be that humanity had their origin in um, most likely East Africa, and that, you know, as humanity began to migrate around the world, regional differences emerged in humans uh, through that that process of migration and the separation or isolation of the different population groups. But but fundamentally, we all, you know, ultimately uh, come from people groups that most likely looked very much like African people groups look today. Uh, and, and so this is what the, the data says. And this, this model is called the out of Africa model. And that, that model has a lot of similarities to a biblical model for human origins where humanity has a, a recent origin in a single location from a small population. And provocatively with molecular anthropology, you can show that using mitochondrial DNA as a genetic marker, 
Every person on the planet traces an origin back to an ancestral sequence called mitochondrial Eve. And every man on the planet using Y-chromosomal DNA as a genetic marker traces an origin back to a single ancestral sequence that is called Y-chromosomal Adam. And many people believe that mitochondrial Eve and Y-chromosomal Adam were actually individuals that would have lived at, at the same time. And this is provocative in, in light of the biblical account of, of human origins, that there is this convergence, this harmony, this resonance between the biblical account and the, the scientific data. And, and so, you know, to me, uh, you know, there's just this beautiful congruence that suggests that there's credibility to the biblical account of human origins uh, that emerges out of, uh, out of molecular anthropology. So going back to the, what you said about like to the color. So if the initial mankind was colored or tanned, is there research that can show that the pigmentation can change? So uh, a tanned person be, could become white. I mean, I'm, I'm tanned, so I don't know. I mean, like a mixed race could go com- like completely black and can like mixed, mixed race go completely white based on like generations of, sun exposure or like environmental effects on the, the DNA or something? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And uh, uh, prior to the out of Africa model, uh, the, the prevailing view uh, for human origins was something called multi-regionalism. And that view argued that, that humanity began about 2 million years ago with, as in a primitive form. Uh, and, and so this would have been a creature like Homo erectus. And that this creature made its way out of Africa into Europe and into Asia, into Australia, and in these different parts of the world, evolved from a primitive form to a modern form, in a sense, independently. Uh, and occasionally there, were gene, there was gene flow between these populations, maintaining unity as the same species. But the argument goes that, that it was evolution happening independently in different regions of the world over the span of two million years that actually produced uh, the different racial groups. And this idea of multi-regionalism connects to an idea called polygenesis that was common uh, in Darwin's time. And polygenesis and multi-regionalism, by the way, fueled a type of racism uh, within anthropology, a type of scientific racism where the argument goes, because humans were evolving independently in different parts of the world, those humans that were in, in Europe evolved to a greater degree and attained a greater amount of superiority compared to uh, darker-skinned people in Africa or in, in Asia or in Australia. So it was used to justify actually a type of scientific form of racism. It's just so crazy and, that you could imagine two human beings evolving at, evolving at the same time. I mean, just one human being is ridiculous, but for two separate human races to i mean come on i mean that's just like taking the really bad odds up another level you know by by the same probabilities multiplying by each other you know yeah well it does and you know uh so agree with you a hundred percent there uh but the point that i'm trying to make is that within anthropology there was this deep-seated notion that racial diversity among people was really deeply entrenched in, in a in a long history of evolution uh, and then when the out-of-Africa model comes along relatively recently, one of the chief objections to that model is how on earth do you explain the origin of racial diversity? Because it would require racial diversity to emerge 
relatively rapidly. Because interestingly enough, when you look at the skeletal remains of modern humans, as they began to make their way out of Africa, the older remains tend to actually show very little difference among one another. It's only the remains that are more recent where you begin to see skeletal differences that would reflect regional differences in humans around the world. And so it looks as if, again, regional differences or quote-unquote racial diversity is a relatively recent phenomena. Well, it turns out that people have done a lot of work trying to explain the origin of racial diversity, and it turns out that microevolutionary mechanisms can do a wonderful job of explaining racial differences or regional differences. And it's a combination of natural selection, sexual selection, and genetic drift. And uh, we could get into some of the specifics if you want to, but the fact of the matter is when, when you have this, this combination of three mechanisms working and you impose that upon uh, migrations where humans are migrating you know, uh, very rapidly throughout the world, that combination of factors can explain regional differences among people very quickly. But the point is that most of these regional differences are relatively uh, minor differences that have very minimal biological significance or biological consequence. They're largely superficial differences. And, and in fact, there's such a high degree of genetic homogeneity among humans around the world that this is part of the argument for why humanity must have originated recently from a small population. And in fact, the genetic variability within a, a, a people group on average is probably greater than the average genetic variability from people group to people group. So what the, the data shows us is that uh, genetically, psychologically, and, and I would argue as a Christian spiritually, we all are one and the same. There really is no fundamental difference between between any any people around the world. But you know, to me, what's interesting is that this challenge to the out of Africa model that you can't explain the origin of racial diversity in so rapidly is a, a common challenge that I hear against uh, creation models for the origin of humanity. If humanity, you know, was all the same and it was only recently forced to spread around the world after the, the Tower of Babel incident, that how do you explain the origin of regional differences so rapidly? And it's the same problem that really confronts the out-of-Africa model, uh, which highlights, again, I think that the harmony between the latest scientific thinking on human origins and the biblical view. Wow, man. I, I, I kind of skipped to evolutionary biology university. So, like, it's it, it, the little biology that I did at university is like, uh, I mean, you just, you must find it hard to study all the evolution and stuff. It's like you don't you don't believe it is real. So how how do, you, how do you manage that? Well, you know, I, I uh, uh, came to faith in Christ when I was a graduate student studying biochemistry, and before that, I was an agnostic. So I embraced the evolutionary paradigm as a as a uh, undergraduate student, mm -hmm. and in graduate school, I was convinced that the origin of life required a creator. But from that point on, I just argued that maybe God used evolution as a means to create. And so it wasn't, it wasn't until much later on uh, that I actually began to question uh, aspects of the evolutionary paradigm beyond the origin of life problem. So, you know, I, I grew up being inculcated in the evolutionary paradigm. And so I'm, very comfortable putting on the hat of an evolutionary biologist 
and looking at the scientific data. And I'm very comfortable taking that hat off and putting on the hat of, a, of an older creationist and looking at the data. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't say an, the, the, the world's leading expert in, in evolutionary biology. There's a lot about evolutionary biology that uh, I'm still learning. It's a, it's a, you know, a vast area within biology, uh, but I understand the principles well enough to, 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 I think, interact with the ideas that come out of evolution. Uh, and, you know, I'm not a complete skeptic of evolution, by the way. I think there's elements or aspects of the evolutionary paradigm that are well-established, but there's other aspects of the paradigm that I think are lacking for, from a scientific perspective. So uh, you mentioned this thing called um, my, my mitochondrial fingerprinting. Can you explain like what that involves and how like how many permutations it can have? How does it compare to something like a fingerprint or like a digital barcode ID? Yeah, I think the, the idea of a digital barcode ID is a is a really good uh, analogy. In fact, interestingly enough, there's an area in systematics called DNA barcoding, where people are treating DNA sequences as barcoding information and they're using this as a way to identify species. And there's a number of applications for, for DNA barcoding, but, and in fact, people are using mitochondrial DNA or at least regions of the mitochondrial genome as DNA barcodes. So it's a whole area of systematics that's really very fascinating. But the idea behind uh, mitochondrial uh, you know, DNA analysis for you know, characterizing human origins has to do with the fact that mitochondrial DNA, which is a small circular piece of DNA found in the mitochondria that is independent of the nuclear genome, uh, is inherited from mother to child. And this has to do with what happens during fertilization. Uh, so all of the mitochondrial mitochondria in our bodies are ultimately derived from the, the egg cell that our mother provided that was you know, part of the fertilization process. And hence, all of our mitochondrial DNA are inherited from our mother. And so it gives a, inherit, a maternal inheritance, if you will. So like you know, my children have my wife's mitochondrial DNA, not the, the mitochond my mitochondrial DNA, and they in turn have their grandmother's and great-grandmother's mitochondrial DNA. So it, it's a very clean pattern of inheritance that, the, and, and mitochondrial DNA doesn't undergo recombination, which is also very important. And so over time, mutations will accrue in mitochondrial DNA. In fact, they accrue at a much more rapid rate than they would in the nuclear genome, in part because of the the, the environment of the mitochondria, where there's a lot of reactive oxygen species that are generated as part of the metabolic processes that take place in mitochondria. So it, so the rate of mutation is, is fairly rapid. So it, it makes it ideal to try to track recent, uh, recent events in, in human history because of the rapid rate of mutation in, in the mitochondrial genome. And the idea would be that as you have a parent population that then has a subpopulation that breaks off and migrates to another region, the mutations in that mitochondrial DNA will be distinct from the mutations in the parent population. And then when that population breaks off and migrates further, there will be, again, a new set of mutations that accrue, but also 
a shared set of mutations with the parent population. And if you repeat that process over and over again, you can basically look at mitochondrial DNA sequences and kind of group them into a nested hierarchy of sequences that presumably reflects their history. And, and then if you map those sequences or those groups of sequences onto a global map, you can actually now tell what the migration pattern would have been for humanity. And it turns out that the further out you go, uh, the, the greater the degree of mitochondrial uh, variation in the mitochondrial DNA that you see. And as you come closer and closer to the, the African point of origin, you see lesser and lesser uh, diversity, if you will. And so that's in a, in a nutshell how you know the, the mitochondrial DNA analysis works. And if you know the rate of mutation, uh, you can actually calculate the time frame in which the different population groups separated from each other. And again, work your way backward to when the original population uh, must have existed, or at least when the migrations began from that original population. I really admire the, the software people that wrote that text analysis to, to basically, I mean, that, uh, I, I couldn't program it. You have to be really good at statistics to basically do that. And I found statistics was actually quite, quite a difficult subject at university. Um, yeah, I'm just surprised that, you know, the mathematicians and there's like dual mathematicians that could pull that kind of stuff off, you know? Yeah, well, when you get into population genetics and certain aspects of evolutionary theory, it's heavily mathematical and it's a lot of statistical, you know, pretty advanced statistics that are, are brought to bear. So, yeah, um, yeah, you know, the, it's, it's population genetics. And when you start looking at population histories, it's an extremely challenging area uh, within, within the life sciences. Are any of you guys that uh, reasons to believe uh, mathematicians? Uh, I'm not, I'm just a biochemist. So, okay. uh, but you know, I, I, you know, know enough of the, the biological principles and, and have had enough of an introduction to some of the math that I can at least follow, uh, you know, significant portion of the work that's done in, in population genetics. I wouldn't say by any means I, I've got expertise, but I'm able to, to follow the, the arguments that are you know, that are being made and, and follow, you know, some of the analyses. But, uh, you know, uh, there's actually not a whole lot of people that I know that are involved in the science faith conversation that actually have bona fide expertise in, in population genetics, which is really unfortunate. But, you know, uh, alas, uh, that's the situation we find ourselves in. You know, as, as Christians, we believe there is a singular truth and we believe there's also a, a force against the truth. So there's a lot of intellect, evil intellect and evil energy against the words of, of God. So I'm not surprised that things can be so challenging right now for, for us and organizations that are pro-truth in a sense. Yeah. And you know, the, 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 what's really complicated is that each of those ideas that you listed uh, have elements of, of truth to them, <laughs> right? So they're not just out, outright, you know, uh, I, they're not ideas that, that are outright through and through false, but ra rather there's elements of truth to them. 
Yeah. And so that even makes it, you know, more complicated, you know, um, in terms of how do you, you know, evaluate the, the claims and the ideas. And, and my approach always is uh, to try to find places where, you know, there's, there's common ground, there's points of common agreement, because like even, you know, back to this uh, Scientific American article, you know, I think part of the, the, the motivation too behind the article is essentially um, appropriating what we might call critical race theory or critical theory, which is an, an idea that is now, you know, uh, spreading at least throughout the United States, probably other parts of the world, you know, where there are, you know, when it comes to racial d- groups, there are those that are oppressed and those that are the oppressors. And the goal behind critical race theory is to make the oppressed the oppressors and the oppressors the oppressed. And so it's a it's a version of, of social Darwinism, if you will. Uh, but, you know, even like with critical race theory, you know, there's elements of that that I think are, are valid in the sense that they've done a great job of identifying the fact that there is ra- significant racial discrimination happening in the world and that there are people that, that hold power. And as part of that power privilege they have, instead of using it to benefit all people, they use it to benefit themselves and in the, the group that they most closely identify with, you know, and so there are oppressed and there are oppressors in our world. But to me, the, the solution that's being uh, uh, offered, which is essentially the, the, you know, subtly between the lines, the, the solution that Allison Hooper is, is, is implying. And that is, Hey, we, we need to essentially, uh, you know, we need to uh, strip uh, creationists of any kind of power or influence that they have because they are groups of people that are oppressors, oppressing, you know, uh, you know, people of color. And so we need to, to, to strip creationists of any kind of political or social capital that they might have, turning them into the oppressed. You know, uh, this is, this is it, the stuff that garbles. Goebbels used this is the kind of propaganda that they guys espoused on the Nazi party. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, and there is a this this intimate connection between, but it's it's essentially a a type of social Darwinism, and it's no you know accident that critical race theory and critical theory is connected to Marxism, and Marxism was inspired by social Darwinism. Right. And so and, and, and of course, social Darwinism is ultimately inspired by Darwin's theory of, of evolution and the, and the idea of natural selection and the survival of the fittest, the survival of those that are most powerful. So it's all intertwined, interestingly enough. Um, uh, and uh, and so I think, yes, indeed, there are places of common ground that we we can find with critical race theory, with you know, postmodernism with transhumanism, with medical, you know, certain medical views, you know, things like that. Uh, but we also need to make sure that we never lose the distinctive of our worldview and that we're willing and are able to advocate for our worldview. But I find that if we can operate off of a position of common ground, uh, that many times I think we can advance the Christian worldview much more effectively than than treating these different perspectives 
as as being dangerous and and viewing them as the enemies. Because in my opinion, all diff, all these different perspectives have done a beautiful job of identifying what the, pro, the what the problem is, and it's a problem that we recognize too as Christians. The sad thing is that the solution that they propose is ultimately a false gospel, whether it's the false gospel of tra- transhumanism, the false gospel of secular humanism and postmodernism, or the false gospel of, of critical race theory. Uh, and, but, uh, and, and yet the gospel, I think, in all of these cases actually provides the, the resolution to the problems that people have identified. Uh, and, and so if we are able to find common ground, I think we can help people to see the power uh, of the gospel and how radical the gospel is uh, in terms of, a, uh, of an idea that could really, again, solve the problems that, that so many people, you know, are struggling with. So these big ideas that we're discussing, what size of the population of the ordinary man or woman you think actually think about these things versus just trying to get by the struggle of life, feed the families, pay the rent, work, and they just want to keep a low profile out of any political stuff, but they just don't give any effort to thinking about the potential outcomes of transhumanism and secular humanism and um, these kind of pieces that Scientific American are putting out there. Yeah, you, you know, you, you're asking a, a really... Um a really important question, Nikos, and I very much appreciate it because uh, I think it's really a very small number of people that actually think about the implications of these ideas or even think about, frankly, the implications of the gospel. You know, as, as Christian thinkers, uh, uh, most people are just trying to live their lives and, and, and what their, their, their worldview is oftentimes shaped by popular culture. And so they may never think of, uh, they may never really read or think deeply about the question of human origins, but they might read uh, an op-ed piece in Scientific American, or they might hear somebody that they know talking about that, and they hear this claim that creationism is white supremacy. And so they, they essentially buy into that idea uncritically, or they, they, you know, they, might, they might not think about you know, what does it mean to, to modify, you know, our bodies through technology, but they might think about, you know, wouldn't it be cool to have a, a neural implant that allows me to, to do a better job playing, uh, you know, a, a video game or to, to have a more uh, immersive experience in virtual reality technology. And, and, and you know, or they might, see a science fiction movie or read a comic book, you know, that espouses transhumanist ideas and they buy into these ideas because of the influence and what they absorb from pop culture, never ever really thinking, you know, deeply about these issues. And, and, and I personally am, am fascinated by pop culture because I think there's a very real opportunity to use pop culture as a way to introduce the Christian worldview uh, to people. And so if we can, tap into to the interest that people have in pop culture, um, you know, I, I, and, and, and communicate the gospel and the, and the ideas that undergird the gospel and the implication of those ideas through pop culture, I think we could uh, maybe be more effective. But uh, 
your point is a really important one. I don't think the average person thinks about it, but I think because of the, the fact that these ideas, these big ideas influence pop culture, uh, people absorb them through osmosis and suddenly they, they embrace, whether they realize it or not, critical race theory. They embrace transhumanism. They embrace postmodernism. Uh, uh, and that's what everybody is talking about. And they're talking about it too. That's what everybody around them believes. And they believe that too. And they're just part of the in-group without ever really thinking critically about those ideas. It's really worrying times because people are spending less time with each other. They're spending more time absorbing transhumanist type films from Netflix, which actually I kind of like because they're kind of exciting. I'm actually writing a kind of a sci-fi novel. It's got a little bit of transhumanism and transhumanism in it, but I mean I can't guarantee that I'll, I'll finish it because there's so much other things that I'm doing. Um, but it's a, a dangerous world where people are just outsourcing their entertainment to a, a box and because I spend hardly any time in front of the box um, I find that that my sensibilities towards a lot of the Netflix programming or movies in general they actually bore me because I find them quite un, unstimulating because I'm just always like really hyper stimulated with the podcast and like the, the work that I do with technology that a lot of the plots that are just just action movies they just really bore me so um, that's me, though, but the average person, and I don't want to make myself sound like I'm, I'm superior to the average person, but the people that derive a lot of their fulfillment from that stuff, I actually can't remember what it's like to be that, when I was actually hooked on TV or playing computer games when I was a kid, I was so influenced by it, but I can't remember what it's like to be influenced by the box that much. That How do you relate to people like that nowadays, you know? Maybe there's yeah. lots that can't do anything about it. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, so um, I've, I've got an interview for an hour, but we're on over, we're on over an hour here. But um, I was wondering if I could say a prayer for you and, and pray. Sure. For your Lord, I pray for and his work he's doing in Reason Believe. I pray for fresh strength in his life, Lord. I pray that you would give him wisdom to tackle the enemies against truth and you'd give him new insights that his words would go out and, and make an impact with boldness as he walks in, in your ways, Lord. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mikas. Cool. Well, anything else you want to share with us before we finish this one? No, no. This has been a, a fun time hanging out with you as always. And uh, uh, I just pray uh, blessings on your work and, and your ministry as well. Cool. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on the show again, and uh, we'll catch up with you next time. Yes, sounds good. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Nikos Show. I trust you enjoyed its content and were transported on an adventure. If you are a world-class expert in your field or you know one, please get in touch. I'm also looking for long-term partners to sponsor the show. Please share with your friends if you like this episode and please leave a rating and leave a review if you haven't done already. See you again soon. Nikos out. Bye-bye.